Hey, this is Lee Snow. I'm the preacher of Warm Springs Road Church of Christ, and this is our podcast. I wanted to thank you for downloading today. I hope it inspires you. I hope it builds your faith. I hope it gives you a perspective to see what God wants to do in your life, and I hope it challenges you to a faithful tomorrow. In 1685, a man by the name of King James II became the King of England. He was the grandson of King James I who translated the King James Bible, or at least sanctioned the translating of the King James Bible. And in 1685, King James I's son, Charles, passed away. And so, Charles next oldest brother, James II, took the throne. Now there was a problem, and that was, you know, anytime you have these monarchies, there's always questions about who should take the throne. Well, when Charles II passed away, there was a man who was the illegitimate son of Charles II, who, if he had been legitimate, would have taken the throne. His name was James also. Do they name their kids all the same name? I, I would hate to go to a family reunion of the royal family of England. Everyone is named the exact same. Everyone has 15 numbers after their names. You don't know who is who. You don't know where they're from. Anyways, so James wants the throne. And he is just a duke. He's off in another area and he wants the throne, but he's not given the throne. His, his uncle is. And so James Scott is his name. James Scott mounts a offensive to take the throne. This is James Scott. He's the leader of what is now called the Monmouth Rebellion. Now, you probably never heard of James Scott. You probably never heard of the Monmouth Rebellion unless you study. For some reason, you have a thing about the, the history of England, which if that's the case, I'm, I'm going to question your decision, and what you should be enthralled with. If you get excited about talking about the leader of the Monmouth Rebellion. But anyways, James Scott mounts a rebellion. And he is going to take the throne of England. 1685. This is just 74 years after the King James Bible has been translated. And his group, his his fighters, a bunch of farmers, a bunch of uh, industry leaders and men in his general area, because if you're from the town where the king is from, then you, you could probably get some, some work there. And so they, they all join up into his little militia, and they're about to take the throne back. And, and, and James Scott is going to be the king of England. Now, they had a battle cry. That probably, you, you, you've probably heard of. I don't think we have any people in this branch of the military at Warm Springs Road, at least. But you've heard this battle cry. It's the first time this battle cry was ever used, by the way. It's this. Semper Fidelis. Means always faithful. It's the first time that always faithful, Semper Fidelis, was ever used as a battle cry. Now it is the motto of the United States Marines. They are... They have taken this, this term and made it into everything that they do. But in 1685, all it was was a simple battle cry of a small group of rebels 
in a pretty unimportant area of England who were fighting for a a no-name guy who you've probably never heard of and who no one has really ever heard of to become the king of England. Semper Fidelis. It means this. It means always faithful. And it is um, Latin, of course. But the thing is that this phrase didn't just come about with James Scott in 1685. The term always faithful had been a Latin term in the Latin-speaking, quote-unquote, churches for centuries at this point, by 1685. And all they did was take it and turn it into a military battle cry. The thing is that the term always faithful, it's it's a little misleading, but at the same time, it's not. The word faithful means exactly what you think it does, full of faith. But it's misleading because no one really knows how to define what faithful is. If you ask the everyday member of the churches of Christ today, are you faithful? They're going to say, yes. Why are you faithful? How do you know you're faithful? And most of the time, the answer is going to revolve around something to do with walking through the doors of a church building at least once a week. Right? I mean, let's face it. Yeah, I'm faithful. I go to church every time the doors are open. Y'all ever heard that statement? See, it's misleading because we've turned the term faithful into something else. But in Romans chapter 1, Paul is writing this book because there's a problem here. And the problem is, Paul has wanted to get to Rome for a very long time. At the writing of the book of Romans, at at the end of the, the... late 50s A.D., no apostle had yet made it to the city of Rome. They had been everywhere else, but by the time Paul writes the book of Romans, there had not been an apostle there yet. You see, you had a bunch of Christians who were there because they were converted elsewhere. You had Christians uh, from maybe the day of Pentecost who were from Rome, Jews that went to Pentecost and were converted and went back to Rome. You had people from the surrounding areas who may have been converted and moved to Rome. You had preachers like Apollos who would later go to Rome. Aquila and Priscilla would later go to Rome as well. But at the writing of the book of Romans, there had not been an apostle there. And that puts the church in a weird predicament because, see, the early church didn't have these. They didn't have Bibles. What they had were men who were inspired by God to know everything in this. And so when you don't have a Bible, you need someone to tell you what God is saying. But if you don't have an apostle, you don't have anyone to tell you what God is saying. And you also don't have any way to read it because it's not been written down in its completion yet. And so Paul writes to the book of Romans to the Roman church and says this, Romans chapter 1, verse 11, For I long to see you, that I may impart some spiritual gift to strengthen you. You see, that's the spiritual gift. It's it's the knowledge. These miraculous things that were going on in the first century only happened because of the passing down from the hands of an apostle. So if you met an apostle and you're a Christian, they would give you some miraculous gifts so that you could help the church. That's what Ephesians 4 is talking about. These miraculous gifts 
We're created by God and sustained by God for the betterment of the church, for the building up of the body of Christ until we become a complete man, until the Bible is finished. So God gave us this, this tool to use in the inner time between the time when the church was just being established and we didn't have anything written down and the time when the Bible would be completed. And so Paul wants to get there and give them some spiritual gifts. Now, it's important to know that the spiritual gifts from God are not just miracles. There's two different types of gift from God. In Romans chapter 5 and verse 15, Paul says this, But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. You see, there's the salvation gift. That's what is talked about in Acts chapter 2. That if you believe and repent and confess Jesus Christ and you're baptized for the remission of your sins, then you'll receive this gift, this, this promise is to you and to your fathers. Acts chapter 2 verse 38 and following. So the word gift is not just about miracles. It's also about salvation. But it is about miracles. Romans 12 and verse 6. Having gifts that differ according to the grace of, given to us, let us use them in prophecy in proportion to our faith. So you have these two types of gifts. And Paul wants to get there so that he can give them this. Because here's the thing about the church at Rome. They had faith. They believed Jesus Christ. In fact, he writes the book and addresses it to those who have been called according to his purpose, like he writes the majority of his other books. The Christians in Rome had faith, but they were missing something. They, they weren't able to have the fullness of their faith. That's what the word faithful really means. It doesn't mean that you come to church on Sundays. It doesn't mean that you come to church on Wednesdays. Now, that's a, that's a needed thing. It's a commanded thing. I think sometimes we... We talk about the fact that faithful doesn't mean just showing up to worship services and then we negate the importance of showing up to worship services. I mean, it's, it's commanded of us to come together upon the first day of the week, but it's also commanded of us to come together at other times for study and for encouragement and so forth. And if we neglect to do that, if we neglect to come together on the other times and we spend all of our focus of our Christianity on a Sunday morning then what we do is we, we harm ourselves and we harm our fellow Christians. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 and following. But the word faithful, it's what Paul's writing the book of Romans for. It's, it's, not, it's not just having faith. It's being full of it. To the point that it, it overflows from our personality. It overflows from who we are. Now, here's the question. Most of us have read Romans chapter 1. And he says, I'm writing this because in the meantime, before I can get there, verse 11, I want to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. But I can't get there yet. And so I'm going to write you a book. And in this book, it's going to give you what you need to hold you over until I can get there and give you the miraculous gifts. 
It's going to give you the fullness of your salvation. You're going to know about salvation when you finish the book of Romans. You may not have a miraculous gift yet, but you'll know what you need to know about your salvation. That's why the book of Romans is so difficult to understand. People claim that the book of Revelation is the hardest book to read and understand in the New Testament. Uh, but that's just, not, that's just not the case. The book of Revelation is tough if you let your mind be clouded by the, by the signs in it. But if you look to what the early Christians understood those signs to mean, the book of Revelation is pretty simple. It's this. It's pretty bad right now. It's going to get really bad. And it may get so bad that you have to die. But don't worry, you're going to be okay. The book of Romans, however, well, let's just put it this way. Back in school, um, feels like a long time ago. However, I remember one day, there's one day in class that I remember better than anyone else. And that's the day that we sat down to take a test on the book of Romans. And Keith Mosier handed me that test. And I looked at my best friend in my class and said, I may not be here after this one. See, the book of Romans is tough. If you get done studying the book of Romans, you will understand salvation in Jesus Christ. Which is something that is, sometimes it's like going to the ocean with a thimble and trying to figure it out. And trying to drain it. And it's just not possible. However, this book is written so that they could be faithful. So that they could be full of faith. Now, the problem is, why does Paul start a book talking about how to be faithful and giving them the encouragement of their salvation and the knowledge of what salvation is and how it works and the, the, the benefit of, of the the emotional blessings that come from understanding that I am a child of God and I know what that means and I know what salvation means. He's trying to write this book to hold them over because they don't have miracles and they need the encouragement of their salvation. So why start off with talking about, you remember back in the times of the Gentiles when they were homosexuals and they followed pagan gods and they did this and they did that and they, they committed this sin and they committed that sin and they were so bad that God gave them up to their uncleanness so much so that the God of the universe turned his back on them and let them do whatever they wanted to do? Why does Paul start a book about encouragement in your salvation talking about how bad mankind had become? Why does Paul start a book of talking about the salvation of mankind and how, how many blessings you have in your salvation, talking about the hypocrisy of the Jewish people who killed prophets, who turned their back on God, who held the Bible in their hands and said, we don't care what that says, let's make some harder rules for us to follow. Why does Paul start with the negative when he's trying to encourage people? Well, the fact is you have to know where you came from in order to know where you're going. And see, the encouragement that comes from Romans, 12, Romans chapters 1 and 2 is that what we'll talk about this afternoon, Romans chapter 3. You have to know how bad it really was to see how great it really is. And I think that's a part of the problem that many Christians have today. Many Christians who give up on their faith forget what it was like before we became Christians. 
we, we, we've been in the church for years now. We grew up around the church, maybe. And it starts looking really promising out there, doesn't it? And start, man, look, they have so much fun out there. They can, they can do whatever they want. They don't have to get up on Sundays and drive to a church building and sit there and listen to some guy blabber on for an hour. They don't, they don't have to pay attention to what they're doing. They just live their lives however they want. They're free. Look how free the world is. It looks so good. And the problem is that in thinking those things, we forget just how bad it really was. Maybe that's because some of us were baptized at such a young age that we never really experienced how bad the world really was. I am terrified that we baptize children so young that they don't understand what it's like. And then they get older and they give up on their faith because they never experienced just what the world really was. Now, let's talk about this this understanding where you came from. This is not the first time that Paul does this. In fact, he does it at least four other times in his, in his writings, except in his writings, he, um, he focuses on himself. Titus chapter 3, verse number 1. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward, other, toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient. Now, he's talking about himself here. He uses the, the royal we. we. You know, we ourselves were also this. But Paul is talking about his personal life before he became a Christian. Verse number three. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. For when the goodness and loving kindness of, of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Over and over again in the writings of Paul, he mentions just how bad he was before he became a Christian. I'm the chief of all sinners, yet I'm saved. Romans 3 and verse 23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but the gift is eternal life in Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I think I have it up here. No, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Look how bad you were. Don't you know that idolaters and fornicators and adulterers and homosexuals and sodomites and drunkards and murderers and extortioners will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't you know that? However... You were some of those things. You aren't anymore, but you were some of those things. Over and over again, he focuses on just how bad it was before we became Christians so that we can understand how good it is now that we are Christians. And in Romans 1, he's doing just that. He's reminding them just how bad mankind is. If you want to see just how bad the world is, look at the Old Testament Gentiles and Jews. The Gentiles did whatever they wanted to, and God gave them up. God let them do whatever they want. So that you had people who, like the Ninevites, 
who built pyramids with the skulls of their enemies because they hated mankind so much. You have people like the people who offered worship to the god Molech, who created a barbecue grill and offered themselves on the altar. You want to see just how bad it was before we became Christians? Look back then. Look how horrible it was back then. Not only that, chapter 2, verse 1, don't think that you're anything special, Jews, because you had the word of God and you did the same thing. Sure, you didn't create Molech, but you worshipped him sometimes whenever, it, whenever you thought it would help you. you sure, you, you, didn't, you didn't commit some of the sins of the Gentiles. What you did was you, you acted like you weren't and you really were. Or even worse, you said you weren't and you really were. And you were hypocrites. And you had the Word of God sitting in your hands. If there's one passage of Scripture that shows just how harmful it is for a Christian to sit by and not pay attention to what they're doing, it is Romans chapter 2. If a Jew can have the promises of God, the Ten Commandments, the Law of Moses, the Prophets, and the writings of the Old Testament, and they can have it to the point that they're the only people allowed to have it. Right? I mean, nowadays, every non-Christian has a Bible. You, do you know that it is estimated that every single house in the United States of America, there are enough Bibles in this country for every single house to have one? This book is the most widely distributed. In fact, the New York Times bestseller list just doesn't even put it on there anymore because it wins so much. It's been the best-selling book since it was since the New York Times list was created. And instead of giving number one to the Bible every single time, they just understand that it is the best-selling book. Let's go to some other books and look at how well they sell because the Bible messes up the curve. This book is so widely distributed, yet in the Old Testament, the Jews were the only people allowed to have it, and they held on to it, and they didn't do anything with it. And the danger is that a Christian will hold on to it and not do anything with it either. But you see, in Romans chapters 1 and 2, he tries to get across this one thing. And it's, it's just how bad the world is, but I think that's really looking at the symptom. Why? Why did the world get so bad? In Genesis chapter 6, why was the world so bad that God needed to wipe it with a flood and save only eight people and restart mankind? Why did the Gentiles and the Jews get so bad in the Old Testament? Now, I want to break away from the book of Romans for just a second so that we can get to another passage. And that is Philippians chapter 1, verse 15. Go ahead and open up to there. Philippians chapter 1. Verse 15. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love. See, Paul had this problem, and that is people wanted to get Paul arrested. So they would preach the gospel inadvertently. They would tell people, do you know what Paul is teaching? Do you know that Paul is teaching that Jesus Christ raised from the dead after three days? Do you know that Paul is teaching that the Old Testament way is is of no use. Do you know Paul is teaching that our pagan gods are just little idols? Yesterday we went to the Biblical History Center and you remember those that went, 
he held up the Canaanite idols. That there were actual Canaanite idols. And all it is is a bunch of copper. All it is is a, it's a, it's a rock. In fact, Isaiah makes fun of the pagan gods, and he says that you go out and you cut a tree, you use half of the tree to make an idol, and you bow down and worship it, and then the other half you burn it to use to heat your house. How ridiculous is that? That you're worshiping something, and at the same time you're burning the same thing. And so people would preach Paul's gospel trying to get him in trouble. And that's what he's talking about in Philippians chapter 1. Some indeed preach Christ of envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The word put there is the Greek word kaimai. And it means set down. It means exactly what it's translated as. Set down. It's the same word in Matthew chapter 5, verse 14. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. It's the same word in 1 Thessalonians 3, verses 1 through 3, where Paul says that Timothy's coming is going to establish them because they are destined for this. The word put is the word destined for. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but you've probably heard some preacher along the way saying that God has a plan for every person's life, right? Shake your head like this if you've heard that. All right, we've all pretty much heard it, right? It's true. Paul was destined to be there. Paul was put there. This is my pocket knife. It's Kershaw Cryo 2.0. It's really nice. I just had it sharpened at Great Smoky Mountains Knife Works when we were at PTP. This joker is sharp. If I take this knife and I set it right there, I put it there. That's a different Greek word. That Greek word is this word, tithomai. I set it there. It's inactive. This knife will not do anything if all I do is set it on top of my Bible. Now, here's the difference. Sometimes, when I'm at night, when, it, when it's at night, and, um, and I'm in a parking lot, sometimes I'll take this knife out of my back pocket, I'll flick it open, and I'll sit it on the seat next to me. I put it there. It's not tithomai, and it's not kaimai, it's histomai. It's put there and ready for action. So that if I need it, I can grab this knife and use it. So you have tithomai, histomai, and then you have the Greek word that Paul uses, kaimai. Which is this. You take the knife, you open it, you put it there, and you ponder it. It's reflexive in nature. See, the Greek word that Paul used in Philippians 1 is, I am put here. I am kaimai. It's reflexive. I am put here, ready for work, and I understand why I'm here. And I understand 
what I'm doing. That's the word that Paul decides to use. It's not that Paul was just sat there with no use. Tithamai. It's not that Paul was sit there and just ready in case God needed him to hurt someone. That's what his old life was. That's what he thought his old life was supposed to be. But now he sat down ready for use and he understands why he's there. I am put here for the defense of the gospel. Now go back to Romans chapter 1. Because the problem is, the problem is this. That what Paul was doing in Romans 1 was not just talking about how bad they were. He was talking about the fact that they didn't understand what he understood. Romans chapter 1, verse 1 and verse 14. Paul, a servant of Christ, called to be an apostle, kaimai apart, set apart for the gospel of God. I am under obligation to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the unwise. Paul starts the book talking about how he was set there. He knows why he's there. He has an understanding. He is destined for this work. And the Jews and the Gentiles missed that. They didn't understand why they were there. To the point that Romans chapter 1, verse 24, Paul writes this about the Gentiles. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creator rather than the, cre- the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. The Gentiles were put there too for a reason, and their reason was to worship the creator. If anybody ever tells you that the Gentiles were not under the Old Testament law, they don't understand what they're saying. They were under the Old Testament law. The Gentiles were supposed to be following the Jewish law just like the Jews were supposed to be following the Jewish law. But they didn't understand why they were there. They were put there, but they didn't understand it. The the Gentiles were like that. The Jews also. Romans chapter 2, verse 17 says this, But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God, know his will and approve what is excellent because you're instructed from the law. And if you're sure that you yourself are a judge to the blind, a light to those in the darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of the children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then teach others. Do you not teach yourself? You see, the Jews had a problem. They thought that the reason we're here is to teach the nations just how good God is. Now, they didn't do it the right way. They decided that by isolating themselves and treating everyone as horrible and and not understanding the humanity of mankind, that somehow they were showing the mercy of God, which is not true. But they thought, we're the teachers of the world. They didn't teach themselves anything. They missed their point just like the Gentiles missed their point. And what Paul is trying to get to is the fact that you have to understand where you came from To be reflexive and know why you're here in the first place. Do you know that the things that the Gentiles and the Jews were convicted of in Romans 1 and Romans 2 are the same things that we're convicted of if we're not following the New Testament law? We're to worship in spirit and in truth, John chapter 4. We're to worship our God, Colossians 3 and verse 16. We're also supposed to teach the world, Matthew 28, 19 and 20. I wonder if sometimes Christians don't do the same things that Jews did in the first century, in the, in the sub-first century. 
I wonder if sometimes we say we're here to teach the world and the way we're going to do it is by treating everyone like garbage and making ourselves look really good. I wonder if sometimes we do the same thing as the Gentiles and we say, well, we're, here to, we're put here to worship God and so we're going to decide how we do that. We're commanded to do the same things that the Gentiles and the Jews were commanded to do and they didn't follow it. And we have a different law to follow to do it. But the action is still the same. The, way, the means by which we fulfill those actions are different. But the command is still there for us to worship and to teach the world. And if they were going to be faithful, if these Romans were going to be faithful, they had to realize that the place that they are is the same place that the Gentiles and the Jews were. And they had the same decision to make. Are we going to worship the way we want to worship or are we going to worship the way God wants us to? Are we going to teach what we want to teach or are we going to teach what God wants us to teach? Are we going to teach in the way that we want to or in the way that God wants to? See, the reason why Paul wrote the book of Romans was to get them faithful. To give them the fullness, the feeling of encouragement from their faith. Faith is not all about feeling. Sometimes you can be a faithful Christian and not really feel all that great about yourself. Faith is not just about feeling. But when you understand salvation, when you understand what the book of Romans talks about, when you understand what it means to be a child of God and be saved because of the grace of Jesus Christ, there is a feeling involved in that. And it's a feeling of encouragement and empowerment and success. Now the problem is, sometimes we strip Christianity of all the feelings and we say, because the world is so enraptured with the feelings of religion, we have to somehow get the feelings out of it. That's not what God intended. God intended for those Romans to feel something because of their faith. To be encouraged. And even though they didn't have miracles yet, they were going to be able to be faithful, full of faith, until the time when Paul got there and gave them miracles so that they could build the church up. And sometimes we need to remember that as well. And the best way to do that is exactly what Paul did. The best way to be encouraged by your faith is to sit down and just remember just how bad it was before. I know, well, you were supposed to forget about those things. We're supposed to forget about other people's sins. Nowhere in the scripture does it tell us to act like it never happened. And the beauty of Christianity is the reflexive nature of understanding why we're put here. That God, like a pocket knife, has opened us and set us there ready for the defense of the gospel. And we understand why. And in order to understand why, we have to understand what it was like beforehand. Otherwise, we're the Christian who grows up in the church and who gets old and doesn't remember or never knew. And it starts looking really good out there. Really good. And the problem is that if all we're looking at is the perceived positives of the world, the world will win every time because we will rationalize it to ourselves. 
We will rationalize that just this one time it's okay because I'm just, I'm just testing the waters. I just want to see how good it is out there. We will give ourselves up. It's just true. Sometimes the reflexive nature of Christianity understands just how ridiculous we can be sometimes. You see, the beauty of salvation is that we can look back at the old life like Paul does on four occasions with his life, like he does with the lives of the Corinthians, like he does with the lives of all of humanity in Romans chapter 1, and say, look how good we have it now. And if we're going to be faithful, we need to do that on a regular basis to remind ourselves where we are and how we got here and the benefits of it. If you want to be a Christian this morning, become a Christian. We're going to stand and sing a song of encouragement for you. I promise I will put my pocket knife in my back pocket. You don't have to be scared. It is pretty sharp, though. Um, and if you meet me in a parking lot after 9 o'clock, just know that old Shirley is open in my back pocket. Anyways, maybe something else waiting for you, too, but that's a different study altogether. All right, so if you want to become a Christian this morning and be baptized for the remission of your sins, let's go ahead and sing a song of encouragement. And if you're a Christian and you need encouragement, uh, the song is meant to encourage you, but the best way for a Christian to be encouraged through a sinful time is to repent of it publicly. It's not always mandated. Sometimes there are sins of a private nature that are not mandated to be repented of publicly. But that does not mean that it won't help to do so. If you need to repent of sins because you need the encouragement from that, then let us know. If you need the encouragement just from fellow Christians praying for you and, and wrapping their arms around you and, and just giving you a high five, then let us know while we do that as well. We're going to stand and sing a song of encouragement. Gary's going to lead us in that. And let us know if you are subject to the invitation.